Thank you. Um, <coughs> thanks, Daniel. Um, all right, we um we have about two more. Not about. We have two more Ecuador testimonies yet to be heard, um, and then. A, uh, after they're done, we're going to hear from Albert Kang about his time in Ghana. Um, really excited about um, the things that God has been doing in us, in our congregation. Have you been enjoying these testimonies from our people? It's been really uh, good. I, as you know, one who went to Ecuador, it's cool to see how um, the experiences that we all went through together, filtered through different lenses, passions, experiences, come out in a completely different way. How the way I was uh, I met God, and the way God met me is so different from how he met different people on the team. And that has been really encouraging and inspiring to see. And as I, as I talk to people in the congregation, um, there's a similar theme, saying, uh, the, the sense that um, from the first testimony up until um, you know, now, it just seems like God has really been working in the hearts of, of people and um, in our times of worship with uh, when Pastor James Cha came and and just spoke, there's been a, um, a real sweet sense in which God has been moving. This is obviously this undercurrent has been bubbling up for some time, but um, it's, 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 it's cool to see as I talk with people, even in, in light of last weekend's uh, retreat and revival weekend, um, how tangibly people are really trying to put feet to the convictions that God has given to them. Uh, folks like Daniel, he's um, made a commitment with, uh, one, with uh, one of our fellows, a college student, he said, hey, um, we need to keep each other accountable to fellowship and to growing together. And so Daniel said, um, every week I'm going to go to prayer meeting, and every week I'm going to go to house church. And um, Joseph in, in Illinois said, every week I'm going to go to church on Sunday, I'm going to go to a small group. And every week that they miss, they owe each other $15. Right? So they're putting feet to their conviction and saying, I'm going to follow God um, until there's a cost. Right? Even at a cost to myself, I'm going to seek to be accountable. Um, Daniel's meeting with some other guys, and they're having devotion together. They're working out together and really pushing each other to, to pursue after Christ. I was talking with someone yesterday who, um, without telling anyone, just went to McDonald's and bought about 20 burgers from the dollar menu and then attached $5 bills to them and went throughout downtown Orlando, passing these out to homeless people feeding people, just wanting to really live out the convictions. One of our college students saying that he wants to um, begin evangelism on the campus of the school that he's at. And, and there's this, this sense in which God is really stirring something up for us to, to not just feel in here, but to go out there and to do and to live out our faith in a way that perhaps the world hasn't seen yet. And as these things are, are bubbling up within us, right, in the aftermath of what God might be doing in us. How do we move forward? How do we respond to the work of God in our lives? I want to talk about that by looking at the life of a guy who experienced this great move of God within his life, and yet when it came time for him to live it out, he fell completely flat on his face. Um, the guy we're talking about, is, his story is found in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, starts even before that. But I'm going to set the stage here and talk about this guy, Elijah. So Elijah was a, was a prophet of God, um, just a man of God whom God had called to be um, the mouthpiece of God and his ministry. Actually, his name means there is no God like Jehovah, like the God that we worship. Uh, his Old Testament he revealed his name to be Jehovah. There's no God like him. That's what his name means. So whenever someone called his name, uh, he's hearing there's no God like Jehovah. And the way he demonstrates is not only in the preaching of the word, but in the miraculous manifestations of God's power that were shown to, uh, to confirm the teaching that he was giving, the prophecy that he was giving to his people. So he's ministering in, in, in some time, and, 
in the time that he's ministering, the people of God, the Israelites, um, it's a dark time for them because they've fallen away from God. They've, um, their king is a, is a bad name, man named Ahab, and he has caused them to, to go astray and worship other gods. His wife Jezebel, an angry, mean, snake of a woman, introduced the worship of an idol named, named Baal. Right? And so the, the, the nation is divided between God and Baal. And so all of these things are happening. And as happens when we worship idols, consequences begin to follow. And for three years, there's a drought in the land. And so you can imagine for not just one year, not just two years, but for three years, no rain has fallen. You're thirsty. Crops are dying. People are in bad shape. And, Isaac, and Elijah says, okay, enough is enough. And he says, the time has come for the drought to end. And he says, we're going to show once and for all who the true God is. And so he takes the people up to, to Mount Carmel, which is a, which is a mountain um, in the area. And he says, here's what we're going to do. There are these prophets of Baal who believe that Baal is a true God. So he invites 450 of them along with 400 prophets of, of Asherah, who's kind of a consort of Baal, and says, 850 of you guys, I want you to pray as, as long as you need to and pray for fire to come and to consume this offering. Okay. If your God answers by fire, then we as a nation will worship him. On the other hand, I believe that my God, the God whom we worship, the God Jehovah, is the true God. So after you're done worshiping and praying to your God, I don't believe fire is going to come, then we're going to pray to our God. I'm going to pray to our God, and then we'll see who answers by fire. And we will worship and serve that God only. So here are the 850 prophets, false prophets are praying. They're, they're, they're slapping themselves, and they pray, and nothing happens. And so at the end of the day, after all of this is happening, Elijah walks over and he says, okay, come over here with me. And he just simply says, God, send your fire, let your fire fall. And bam, it just comes and it just burns everything up. The prophets are amazed. Everyone is amazed. They're like, oh my gosh, there is no other God. The Lord, he is God. They take these 850 false prophets, they slaughter them. And these guys are all dead. And then the the next thing Elijah does is he prays. He prays and he says, God, uh, let your rain fall. And then the rains begin to fall. You ever... You ever experienced anything like this where like all these people are against you and they don't believe that your God can show up and, and you pray and all of a sudden God shows up in this like miraculous supernatural way. And then the next thing you're like praying for rain. It hasn't, nothing's happened for three years and just a simple prayer, God, let it rain. And then it just begins to fall. So Elijah is just, he's filled with the, with the spirit of God at this point. And so here's King Ahab. He's going in his chariot 20 miles to Jezreel where his wife Jezebel is. She doesn't know what's going on. So he's going to tell her what happened and the rain starts to fall. And so the chariot is going and Elijah wants to get to Jezreel as fast as he can before the rain in the, in the uh, ditch, it would get muddy. He would slip and he would fall. So he just, it says in the power of God, he runs and filled with the Spirit of God, this cat outruns the chariot and gets to Jezreel first. Okay, this is one, the fire, two, the rain, and three, the outrunning of a chariot. Three, one right after another, just powerful encounters with God. And he gets to this place where if, if, if this is you, if this is me, like I am so full of, of life and so full of passion, just ready to live and die for, for God. And then we jump into chapter 19, and this is what happens next. This is 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through uh, the first part of, of, of verse 9. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent the messenger to Elijah, 
to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them, like that of one of them. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. I take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. This is God's word. This is quite a shocking departure. At the end of chapter 18, Elijah is the biggest winner. At the beginning of chapter 19, he's the biggest loser. At the end of chapter 18, he's flying, he's soaring, he's just filled with the Spirit of God. And at the beginning of chapter 19, he's suicidal, depressed, and ready to give it all up. All right, what happened? In the, what, what's going on here that caused him to lose sight of what God was doing? What caused him to go from the top of the mountain to the depth of despair? What happened? And how can we avoid the same thing? I want to look at three mistakes that Elijah made. Three mistakes that he made that we often, actually, in fact, I, some of us have already made. Three mistakes that he made that kept him from moving forward in the promises and the plan and the victory that God had won for him. Okay, the first thing is this. He thought that the revival road was easy. Okay, that's the first thing. So here, Elijah is here, and he's just seen um, the power of God demonstrate. He's seen the glory of God fall in a way that, that, that has never been seen before. He's just in this place where he's soaring on cloud nine, and he thinks, okay, when Ahab tells his wife Jezebel, she's going to renounce Baal worship. She's going to fall in worship of the true and living God. She's going to turn this nation around. There's going to be revival there's going to be a supernatural awakening. Young and old are going to turn to Jesus. The heavenly gates are going to be flung wide open and we're going to dance upon injustice and God is going to reign in this nation again. That's what he thinks. Yet when Jezebel hears, she responds nothing the way that, she, he, that, that Elijah expects him to respond. And in fact, she sends a text message and saying, hey, 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 check this out, Elijah. Within 24 hours on my life, I guarantee you that within 24 hours, you're going to be dead. Now, imagine if you're Elijah, if you've experienced all of these things that he's just experienced. You've experienced this revival. You've experienced this retreat. You've experienced all these great things. How ought you respond? Okay, I'm thinking if I'm Elijah, I would text back to her and I would say, LOL, haha, right? You and what army? Don't you realize that I just routed 850 of your people and you think I'm going to be scared of you? But what does he do? He puts his tail between his legs and he runs as fast as he can. He gets out of there. The problem with Elijah is that he thought revival road was going to be easy. All of these great things happened and now it should be simple. And God's saying, hold on, Elijah. You think, you think Carmel was the hard part? you got to be kidding me. 
You think being used by God is the hard part? You think worshiping God in the presence of all these people he's talking to, you think worshiping God in the midst of the congregation and being challenged and being convicted that God is a true and living God, you think that's the hard part? That's easy. The hard part is when you begin to take those things that God has shown you and you begin to live it out. That's the hard part. And the challenge for Elijah was he thought, you know what? I've seen all of these amazing things. I've seen all of these great things. Now it should be easy. It should be smooth sailing. But God's saying, no, it's not. How many of you guys experienced that? You came out of last weekend or you came out of the Ecuador trip. You came, whatever it is that God's been doing, you were convicted by these messages that our speakers have been sharing, been convicted by testimony. You said, I'm going to live a different life now. And you were so excited and you went back to live that life. And as soon as you got home, Right, the temptation started popping up on your computer screen. The children kept on keeping you awake at night, and you just felt like, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. As soon as you got in the car to go back home, you, you got in a fight with your spouse. He said, you know what? Screw it. Forget it. It's not worth it. See, the problem is, the problem that Elijah had was that he thought the road after this revival was going to be simple. And God's saying, no, the journey is just beginning. It is just beginning, Elijah. Right, this, is where you're, this is where the rubber meets the road, and you really begin to show whether you've got it or not. See, our expectations make all the difference in the world. If we anticipate, if we expect that it's going to be easy, the first sign of hardship, we're going to realize, you know what, this isn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. Maybe I signed up for the wrong thing. Now, we've got... Um, a gal, Sarah, she's one of our people. She's a teacher. Um, teaches, I think she teaches kindergarten now. But um, back a, a few years back, she taught, um, I don't know what grade it was, but she taught one of our um, eighth graders, Timothy, who's actually her nephew. She taught Timothy when he was in, was it kindergarten or preschool or something like that, preschool. And so she taught Timothy, and so she would uh, teach him all these things. And, and because she's got the family connection, sometimes on special occasions, she would bring Timothy's little brother, Jonathan, who was probably like three years old at the time. She'd bring Jonathan into the school as well. So during these, these festive occasions, special days, Thanksgiving party, um, Jonathan would tag along and he would come and he would eat uh, candy corn and turkey or whatever it was. And when it's Christmas time, he would come to, to school and he would get these presents and party and candy and all this stuff. And when it was Easter time, the Easter party is here. Here comes Jonathan and, and these kids in the class are wondering, how come he always comes for the parties? And, and that's what he would be there for. So Jonathan, in his mind as he's growing up, you can imagine, three years old, he's like, man, I love going to school. This is great. Every time I go to school, they give me candy. Every time I go to school, people are happy. They're eating. And they let me eat food that I don't get to eat at home. And this is so amazing. Imagine the shock to his system when as a first grader, Jonathan goes to school fully anticipating he's going to be trick-or-treat all over again, and then the teacher gives him homework. Teacher says, sit there, write something. All of a sudden, it's like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Because it would be such an awakening if you think school is simple that first time you experience hardship in school. And the same thing is happening here. And maybe the same thing is happening here with us. Is that we go out from this great weekend, or we go out from these experiences of God on the mountaintop, and we think, okay, I'm full of the Spirit. I'm going to go, and I'm going to live for God. And then all of a sudden, these challenges begin to come. We realize, you know what? This road isn't easy. The road for revival 
the road from revival, the road to revival, the road through revival isn't very easy at all, is it? When things at home are just utter chaos, when it just physically we feel like we can't handle it anymore, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, feel like we're running all by ourselves. And all of a sudden we realize that this road of revival isn't an easy road. You know, it's interesting because the Bible gives all kinds of images for the Christian life. It talks about it being marriage. It talks about it being a, a journey, a race, a marathon, none of which are simple. It says the Christian life is a war that we've been enlisted into. Or you imagine someone signing up to go to the army, and then as soon as they get their weapons and they go out into uh, the Middle East or they go out into where do, wherever it is that they go, and, and the first gunfire that they hear. Like, what the heck is going on here? This isn't what I signed up for. Of course it is. No one enlists into the army thinking that it's going to be easy. And in the same way, God's saying, you don't enter into this Christian journey thinking it's going to be easy. In fact, the reason why Elijah had such a hard time moving forward after this great mountaintop experience was because he had the wrong idea of what this journey was going to look like. And maybe some of us do also. But the reality is that this life, this road, this journey is not going to be easy. That's the first mistake that he made. The second thing that he did, the second thing that he did is that he ran forward in his own strength. He ran forward in his own strength. This is huge. So Elijah, here he is, right? He calls down, he prays to God for fire to fall down. Fire falls down. Elijah's really excited, but no one in that moment is like, oh my gosh, Elijah, do it again. Oh my gosh, Elijah, you are the coolest thing since David Copperfield. Oh my gosh, you are the coolest thing since Chris Angel. No one says that. In fact, the response is the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Where, where is it? Um, well, it's somewhere down there. But that's what they say, okay? In verse 39, chapter 18, verse 39. That's their response. They don't say, oh my gosh, Let's anoint this Elijah king. Oh my gosh, Elijah's done it again. All he said was fire, fire, <laughs> and then fire came. No one says that. It's all, it's clear as day in Elijah's mind that this is all about the work of God. And then when Elijah prays for rain to fall down, right? Elijah, Elijah prays, rain comes down. James chapter 5, 17 says Elijah was just a man, an ordinary man just like us. He prayed in a drought for rain to come and it rained. He prayed in the midst of rain for the rain to stop, and it stopped. And Elijah was a person just like you and just like me. There was nothing about him that was different. And then when he goes and he outruns his chariot 20 miles, okay, no one is signing Elijah up for the Olympics here. No one is saying, oh my gosh, you're, you're the great marathon runner, Elijah. No, it's clear that it says at, at the, the last verse in chapter 18, the power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. In each of these three encounters, these power encounters where God shows up, it is clear as day to Elijah that this is not about him doing it. It's not about anything that he did. It's not about the great things that he did. It was absolutely and completely clear that this is the power of God that has come upon him. And because of that, he's able to move forward. And yet the first thing that Elijah does in chapter 19, after he gets this message from Jezebel saying, you're toast, I'm going to kill you. The first thing that he does, he takes off running. And from where he is in Jezreel, to Beersheba is, 20 mi uh, is 100 miles. 
And so he takes off 100 miles and he's running. And he's running, he's running. And the next thing that we see when he gets there in, chapter, in verse 3, in verse 4, he's like, you know what? I've had enough. I'm ready to die. I am so tired. I am so beat. I don't have energy left to go on. The difference in chapter 18, Elijah, and chapter 19, Elijah, was that in chapter 18, he was carried by the Spirit of God, dependent upon the power of God. And he sees and witnesses the amazing anointing and the move of God. And yet in chapter 19, he forgets all of that and he begins operating in his own strength. How many of you guys felt like, hey, you know what? Coming out of this mission trip, coming out of these worship services, coming out of revival, coming out of this retreat, I'm ready to just win the world for Christ. And then within a week, you realize, you know what? I've hit a wall. I don't even want to spend time with God anymore. I don't even want to follow through on any of these convictions. You know what? All that seems like it was so far in the rearview mirror. I don't even want to pray for these things anymore. It could very well be that like Elijah, okay, we saw God move on the mountaintop. We knew that it was God moving. And yet as soon as we come and begin to live, we've reverted back to depending in our own strength and depending in our own power. And we hit this wall and we realize that I can't go on anymore. You see, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord comes and he says, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. I think that's a powerful statement right there. God is saying, yeah, you're right. Revival road is hard. But the second thing, you're right. You cannot do it in your own strength. You can't. And some of us made these grand commitments that, God, I'm going to wake up at 5 o'clock every morning. I'm going to spend time with you, and I'm going to see the reviving hand of God come. Not only in my life, but my entire world is going to be changed. And here we are a week later, and we've forgotten about all of these things. You know, it's kind of like, you ever watch these cartoons where someone is, is running, and they, it's always like this. When, they're, when the cartoons are trying to show them running really fast, they run in place first, right? Their feet are going in a puff of smoke, and then, bam, they take off, right? And this always happens, at least with Coyote and Roadrunner. They take off, and they're running, and before you know it, they've run so fast and so furiously that they get to the edge of the cliff, and they're running. They've run off the cliff. And the way that they show this is that they're off the cliff, and there's just a puff of smoke, and he's running. He's moving his arms like this, and he realizes he's not going anywhere, and then he looks at the camera, and then his eyes get big, and then poosh, he falls down to the ground and crashes. Isn't that how some of us feel? Like, I was ready to go and run full speed ahead for God. They come out of that retreat. Monday comes, we were taken off running. And all of a sudden, by Tuesday, we found ourselves crashing down to the ground. The mistake that Elijah made that I make a lot, that probably many of us make, is that somehow in this place of revival, of experiencing God, seeing God move, we begin to transfer trust from God and his strength to us in our strength. Thinking, I've been filled on the mountaintop, so here I am, I'm going to go and I'm going to run for God. Where God is saying, no, that same desperate dependence upon God that you had up there, is the same kind of dependence that you need to live and to thrive and to obey and to move forward down here. Let me ask you, as you run this Christian 
race. From where are you getting your strength? As you live each day for Christ, who is, what is, where is the source of your strength? Where is that coming from? I would venture to say that if we're not spending time with God each day, then it's not coming from Him. It's not coming from Him. And we're going to crash. If we haven't already, we're going to crash very quickly. I remember being... um, my early years in college, I think it was my sophomore year in college, my cousin gave me this book. It was called Fire Seeds of Spiritual Awakening. It was basically a book that talked about all of the revivals that God had brought about through college students in college campuses. And my cousin wrote on this, she said, David, may God use you to bring revival to UVA. And as I was reading this, my heart was just so inspired because it wasn't about like these grand massive movies, it was just about one person. That God would just use one person to pray, and to fast, and to seek his heart. And all of a sudden, entire lives, entire campuses were changed. And I remember as I was reading that book, I said, you know what, why not here in my campus? And I said, if God can do it here, then why not through me? Why not use me? And so God just birthed a, a, a longing for this kind of a revival to come to my college campus. There was prayers in my heart. I said, God, may injustice turn to righteousness. May promiscuity give way to purity. I would just pray all of these things that I saw and would pray vision into them. And other people, obviously, it wasn't just me, but other people were praying these same things. Every Wednesday night when I was a, uh, led my campus ministry, I would pray, let's pray for revival. Let's pray for the lost to be saved. Let's pray for these things to happen. And by the time junior year, senior year rolled around, man, we were seeing every Friday night at large group meeting, just two, three, four, up to like 10 people walking down the aisle, giving their lives to Christ. Every Sunday, people getting, giving their lives to Christ. Every Sunday after that, after a while, we would just have constant people sharing their testimonies of how from this life of a fraternity brother, this life of drunkenness, from this life of, of, of promiscuity, being saved out of that and giving their lives to Christ. Just seeing the reviving hand of God and just being so excited about that. And that was my prayer. I said, God, I don't want to leave this campus until I see revival with my eyes. That's what I would constantly pray. God, don't let me leave until I see it with my eyes. My, um, after I graduated college, I spent another year on campus doing campus ministry with the internship, uh, learning under my, my mentor, Pastor IJ, and just doing ministry together. And as we were there, we'd just pray. And, and that last year, my fifth year on campus when I was doing ministry, it was Pastor Ija, it was myself, and there was three other people. One of them was uh, our missionary in Ecuador, former missionary, Yunju Song. She was one of the staff there. There was another gal named Kathy Oh. She was a little bit older as well, just an incredibly gifted disciple maker, worship leader. There was another guy who had come from Virginia Tech, a guy named Silas who's now pastoring up in Virginia. He just wanted to come and, and, and learn with, with Pastor Ija as well. Five staff workers, and, and it, everyone said, this is, this is a dream team. Right, just amazing people, all of whom are, are, are involved heavily in the ministry now. And we had, at the beginning of the year, just thinking about all the dreams and all the visions and all the things that we wanted to accomplish. And I will say, in, in all honestness, that that was the hardest year, probably one of the hardest years of ministry. The, the ground of campus felt so hard, felt like all of the things that we're trying to do, just none of these things became realized. 
we would, we would hope and anticipate all these things happening and none of these things would happen. And, and I remember saying, God, I don't want to leave now. I don't want to leave like this. But the Lord was calling me home and it was made clear through my parents who weren't going to be supportive of me staying there. And I remember it was our, the, the, the last thing it was the, the last thing that we did before I left and went back up to Northern Virginia. It was this like going away party for a couple of us who had been on staff and were leaving. And I remember that the tangible taste in my mouth was this sense of, man, we could have done so much more. We could have seen so much more. We could have experienced so much more of the, the hand of God moving, but why didn't we? I just remember having this just real poignant conversation with, with, with Pastor IJ afterwards, and he said, you know what? On paper, this should have been the greatest year that our campus ministry has ever known. But in a certain way, and in a certain sense, we became so dependent upon the people that we no longer felt like we needed to depend on God. There's just a sense in which like I feel so deeply convicted. I don't want to do life that way. I don't want to do ministry that way. But I ask myself all the time, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw from my ministry, from my life, would anyone be able to notice? If the Holy Spirit were to withdraw from your life, from your ministry, from your house church leading, from your Sunday school teaching, from your praise leading, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw, would anyone notice? Or would they say, you know what? It's the same thing because you're operating out of gifts and out of your own strength and out of your own talents. And it just cut my heart that day. I said, I don't want to live that way. And I want to encourage us that we don't have to live that way. We can learn from the mistake of Elijah, who depended on his own strength, and he fell flat on his face. That we would learn from his warning. That's the second mistake that he made. The third mistake that he made, the last thing that we see today, is that he forgot what he had just seen and heard. He had seen so many amazing things God had done in that place. And yet when he gets down to it, when his life is threatened, he runs away. He says, you know what? In verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. In essence, here's what he's saying. He's like, you know what? In every generation that I've seen my ancestors live, and as I hear stories passed down through the generations, there has never been a time in Israel's history where the righteous remnant overshadowed those who are running away from God. There was never a moment in which it seemed like the glory of God was prevailing in the life of my ancestors, and I thought that because we saw this miraculous manifestation of the power of God that things would be different now. He's like, it's not, though. I thought things would be different now. I thought there was going to be a change. I thought that revival was here. I thought that revival was coming. I thought that our nation would finally turn back to you. And if I've spent all of my life in this and it culminated in this great moment on Mount Carmel, and by tomorrow I'm going to be dead, then maybe it's just not even worth living anymore. Elijah had forgotten about everything that he had just seen and heard on top of that mountain. He had just seen this manifestation, this this rote demonstration of the power of God where it was so clear to him and to everybody else. Everyone was bowing down and worshiping. There's no God like Jehovah. 
There's no God like the God of Elijah. He can do all things. He can bring fire out of nothing. He can bring rain out of a three-year drought. He can cause a man to outrun chariots and horses. He had seen that. And yet as soon as he leaves, he forgot all that he had just seen and all that he had heard. Maybe for some of us, that's the mistake that we make. We come to this place and we realize that God can do so many things in our lives, that God is able to do all of these things, and we're ready to to, to surrender our lives to Christ. And yet as soon as a little bit of hardship comes, we forget everything that we heard. We hear about a God who cares about those lost people who are going down to hell on the escalator while we're going up and our hearts are moved with conviction. And God gives us the opportunity to share with them and we look at them and that in that moment where we're called to share the hope of Christ with them, to invite them to church, invite them to, to prayer meeting, invite them to house church, in that moment, we forget everything that God has spoken into our lives. And we hear this call of God to, to be generous with our money, to be generous with our finances, to be generous so that, that God can use us for the kingdom of God. And yet in that moment where we have this choice, am I going to write this check to God or am I going to write this check to my own pleasures? We forget everything that we've seen and everything that we've heard, that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in our poverty, God will provide for us in a way that we can never by our own means. And we forget all of these things. You see, what God is trying to show Elijah and what God is trying to show you and me is that he teaches us on the mountain because we will not hear it down here. But he tests us when we come back off the mountain. He teaches us when we're all together and then he tests us when we go back home. And the question he asks is, will you forget what you saw when you were on top of the mountain? When we're all together here, guys, he energizes our faith. But when we walk out of here, he's saying, it's time to exercise your faith. It's not, it's easy when we're in here, guys. It's, this is about as simple as you're going to get. And I am spoon feeding you. Someone is up here spoon feeding the word of God to you. It doesn't get easier than this. When you go back home, you walk out of here, that's when it's time to exercise that stuff. God's giving it to you here because your hearts are open, you're willing to listen. We've got to take it and turn that into action when we move out of here. That's how faith grows. That's how we grow. That's how our world is changed. It's not changed because we feel in here. It's because we do out there. This is where transformation happens, not because we know but because we show, because we go, because we live, because we see it, because our world sees it. And he shows it to us here because our hearts are open to listening to it in a way that we're not able to listen to it when we're just all alone, perhaps. And he takes what he shares with us here and then he reinforces it in our times of devotion, in our personal times. But so often we're not ready to hear him in those other places. So he shouts at it at us here, and he brings this message so that we could take it and that we can live it out down there. The Bible gives a lot of different analogies. It's a mountaintop. It's the light. So we live it in the dark. So we live it in the valley. Right? Faith isn't shown by what we do on Mount Carmel. It's shown by what we do in the desert of Judah. That's where it's lived out. That's where it's shown. That's where it's practiced. That's where it's shaped. 
the last uh, three and a half months of, of Olivia in my life um, has been defined by a journey of sleepless nights and coffee chugging in order to make it through the day because of that cat back there, right? <laughs> He's waking up and coinciding with that, coinciding with the fact that our one, at one time our only daughter has the allegiance of her mother and father divided now, split in seeming half. She's become a little bit more needy as well. So it's hard for Olivia because Elijah, not the prophet, but our baby, wakes up in the middle of the night and he needs to feed. And then in the middle of the night when Manny wakes up, she doesn't want daddy, she wants mom. And so she screams and she cries until Olivia, in the middle of her like sleepwalking stupor, she runs over there and she lays down with Manny until Elijah wakes up and cries and she runs back over. It's a good thing our house is small. He just like runs back and forth. So that's the way it's been. And it's gotten to this point where we're like, dude, Manny, you need to learn to sleep by yourself. And so she's, she's turning three next month. And so she's been telling us, she's like, when I turn three, I'm going to sleep by myself. We're really excited about this. Like your birthday's tomorrow, Manny. <laughs> so she's pretty, she's, she, she's like, seems like she's committed to doing this. So as a transition, we've been trying to prepare her saying, okay, it's not going to be easy to do that. So why don't you do this, Manny? Why don't you, in the middle of the night when you wake up, instead of sleeping with mommy, sleep with daddy? And she's like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll try it. And so Friday night, okay, two nights ago, here's Manny. She's just going crazy in the middle of the night calling for Olivia. And so I walk in. I say, Manny. She's like, no, no, no. No, I thought, daddy, leave. I want mom. I want mom. And so I go on her bed, and she's like just kicking me off the bed. And I'm like, Manny, Manny, remember you said you're going to sleep with daddy? And she's like, no, no, I want mommy, I want mommy. And so I'm just holding her, and she's pushing me away. I'm trying to hold her and get closer. I'm thinking she's going to tire. This is about 3 in the morning. She's going to get tired, and she's going to fall back asleep. So I'm trying to hold her until she falls asleep. It's been like 30 minutes. And so in this, like, sometimes at like 3 in the morning, you get this inspiration. And so I said, aha. I said, Nanny, do you want candy? All of a sudden, she stops crying. I said, do you want candy? And she's like, I want candy. I say, if you sleep with daddy tonight, then when you wake up in the morning, I'm going to give you candy. She thought about it for like a split second. She's like, no. So she keeps on crying. And so I say, Manny, Manny, do you want chocolate? She's like, no, no, I want mommy, mommy. And so I, I got this great idea. Um, every time I, I go on a mission trip or I travel somewhere, I bring something back for the family. And so when I went to China, she, oh, I asked Manny what she wanted. She said, I just want pink cookies. So I brought her some pink cookies. When I went to the equator last time, I mean, to, <laughs> when I went to Ecuador, she's in my head now. When I went to Ecuador, I asked Manny, Manny, what do you want? And she said she wanted pink cookies. So I was walking around the supermarket looking for pink cookies, and I just found one thing, and then I found these pink marshmallows, and I brought it back, and Olivia said, no, this is too sweet. So I I said, Manny, if you sleep with Daddy, I'll give you pink marshmallows tomorrow morning. And she's still like, no, no, and she's screaming. She's like, this is fever pitch, and my ears are about to rip and fall apart. And so, so lastly, I said, Manny, whatever you want in the world, anything you want, I'll give it to you. Just sleep with Daddy. She's like, no, no. So after about 40 minutes of wrestling and bargaining at the table, I picked her up and I took her to Olivia. Saturday, yesterday, we're kind of debriefing this time together. You know, every, every like, ordeal needs debrief. And so we're talking about this. I'm like, Manny, okay, tomorrow night, okay, if you go to sleep right, with daddy, you know what we're going to give you? We're going to give you candy. We're going to give you chocolate. We're going to give you ice cream. We're going to give you pink marshmallows. 
and anything else you want in the world, we're going to give to you. And then she says, and she looks with this smile, and she's like, and daddy's going to be happy too. I said, yes, and daddy's going to be extremely happy. And so we've got this deal going, and she's really excited. We're like, okay, many you promise. And so, you know, like Korean people do this pinky promise, and then they, they touch their thumbs. So we did this. Okay, cool, ready to go. Last night, okay, this is about, what was it, about 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay, 6 in the morning, she starts whimpering. I'm like, oh, shoot, oh, shoot. Just go back to sleep. And then it just becomes a full-out cry. And I'm sleeping in the guest room, so I could be ready to move in. So here I move in, I open the door. And as soon as, you know, when you open the door, she's expecting the silhouette of Olivia. And then I come in, right? So I was like, Manny. And she's like, no, no, no. And, and so she's like shooing me out. And I was like, Manny, Manny, remember? We promised. And she's like, no, no. And she's like screaming. And she's like, I just want mommy. I want mommy. And then I'm, I only wrestled with her for about 10 minutes. I like, I can't do it. I'm not going to deal with this. I've got to preach today. So I was like, <laughs> So I wrestled with her for about 10 minutes, and I sat down, and I said, Manny, okay, this is, I'm imagining this now because she's not smart enough to bargain with me. I said, Manny, why is it that yesterday and the day before yesterday and the day before yesterday, you were so eager, you made these promises, you said, Daddy, yeah, I'll sleep with you. I'll do all of these things. But when nighttime comes, you forget about all of these promises that you made. And then I imagine she looks back at me with this blank stare and telepathically she says to me, because I'm just like my dad. Because I realize that I also, on the mountaintop, when things are going well, when light is out, I can have these great visions of what I want to do for God. I can have these great things that God shows me. If David, do this. Just be, be strong and be courageous. Go for it. You can do this. And I say, yeah, God, I'm going to do it. And in the moment of challenge when darkness falls, I revert back to my old ways. And I say, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this anymore. And for some reason, I don't think I'm alone. I think most of us are like that also. That on the mountaintop of conviction, in those bright places of glory and grace, and we see God so clearly. And we say, God, we can do this. You and me together, we can do this in the power of God. And yet when darkness falls and we're in the desert, it becomes a whole lot harder to see. And God's saying, don't forget what I showed you. Don't forget what I showed you. He says, Elijah, don't forget what you saw. Don't forget who you are. Elijah, there is no one like our God. Remember what you saw on that mountain called Carmel. Remember what I showed you about myself, that there's no one like me. And then he says to us, remember the same thing. Remember what you just sang. Water he turned into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. There's no one like him. There's nobody like him. The same God who brings fire from heaven. The same God who opens blind eyes. Who causes the mute to speak. Who brings nothing, something out of nothing. Because remember what he did on that mountain called Calvary. This is how you know that there's no one like our God. Doctors may be able to open blind eyes, but there's no God 
who would take your sin upon himself, that would take your mistakes upon himself, that would take your sin upon himself. There's no God who would take your stains upon himself and be brutally and harshly murdered so that we could have the promise that he will be with us wherever we go. There's no one like our God. It says, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember all that you've seen and heard. Remember, go back to the mountain, hear it, so that you could come down from the mountain and live it. Right? This is our call. Let's move forward. Don't let the dream die, my friends. Don't let the dreams die. Right? We've got work to do. We've got a world to win. We've got Christ to proclaim. The dreams are alive, and it's living in and through us. Let's pray. May I think about 120, 130, 100 some of us people in here. And there's so much strength that's available to us and so many dreams and so many changed lives that that are waiting for us. Let's not leave that on the table, my friends. Let's not leave all that strength in the prayer closet, but let's harness it for the kingdom of God. So many people, the dream is dying slowly within them because they don't heed the mistakes that Elijah made and learn from them and turn from them. Our God of infinite grace is here with us. And he says, church, rise up. He says, my son, my daughter, rise up. All that I showed you that weekend, all that I showed you in that mission trip, all that I showed you through the word, that's still real. That's still alive. I showed it to you then in that moment when your heart was open. It's not just emotion. Don't write it off. That dream is in you. Let it go. Live it. Breathe it. Dream it. Be an agent of change for the glory of God. You can do this. Let's pray. Let's take a couple moments to pray and respond to the word of God. Just respond by faith, saying, thank you, God, that you are the God of the mountaintop. You're the God of the desert. You're the God of the valley. You're the God of, you're the God of eternal and unending glory. So help me, God. Help me to live for you. And let's pray just one practical step that he might be calling us to take. Maybe a person that he wants to invite to house church. Maybe uh, a prayer, a commitment, a decision to be with God each week. Maybe um, a commitment to our three-strand prayer. Whatever that might be in your life. Just one thing practically. Let's just begin to, let's pray that to the Lord as a sign of surrender and devotion, commitment to him. Let's pray for a minute and then we'll close this time. Father in heaven, more than anything else, we just need continual reminders of who you are. Not you made in our own image. Not you fastened in the way that we want to make you to be. 
but the God of the Bible who breaks through our little boxes, the God of the Bible who breaks through our seeming impossibilities, the God of the Bible who cannot be contained in the heavens or the earth. That's who you are, and that's what we need to see. That's who we need to see. Open our eyes that we might see. If our God is for us, then who could ever stand against us? Father, fill us and fuel us, empower us and strengthen us. The road ahead will not be easy, but you go with us and you strengthen us. Your supernatural power in us, able to do so much more than anything we could ever ask or even imagine. Thank you so much. Go before us, come behind us, fill us each day for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.